0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife's oral board review series. My name is Patrick Georgioff, and I am a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas Red Duke Trauma Center in Houston, Texas.
1: And I'm Vahag Nikolian. I'm a MIS fellow focused on abdominal wall reconstruction at the Columbia University Medical Center.
0: So this series was put together to fill a big need, and that's the delivery of board-centric, practical, clinically relevant information that you need to know for the oral boards. And really... The information in these episodes is not just useful for oral board prep, but for review throughout training, because this is stuff you're going to see every day. Uh, Now, the episodes will be relatively short, but they're going to be very dense, and they will be based entirely off of the score curriculum outline for general surgery. Now, when you register for the boards, uh, you will receive a letter that says the following, and I quote, The content of the certifying exam is generally, although not exclusively, aligned with the SCORE curriculum outline for general surgery. The majority of the examination will focus on topics listed in the outline as core. The remainder will cover topics listed as advanced, or complications of more basic scenarios. In addition, candidates are expected to know how to perform and describe all core procedures listed in the outline. Candidates may also be asked about other procedures, but failure to describe a core procedure will be considered an unsatisfactory performance on that case, end quote. Now, it's also really important to note that neither uh, V or myself have taken the oral boards yet. We will be soon. And that the information in this podcast series is not endorsed by the American Board of Surgery. So with that in mind, let's get started. Uh, Today, we're going to cover all things esophagus. Now, the score 2018 to 2019 curriculum outline for general surgery lists the following diseases and conditions as core uh, in the esophagus section. And that's esophageal motility disorders, esophageal neoplasms, esophageal perforation, gastrointestinal reflux and Barrett's esophagus, and hiatal hernias. Advanced topics uh, or advanced diseases and conditions include esophageal caustic ingestion in foreign bodies. In regards to operations or procedures, uh, core are, uh, there's only one in the core section, that's anti-reflux procedures. Advanced include uh, cricopharyngeal myotomy with a diverticulum, esophageal perforation management, esophagectomy, esophageal myotomy, or Heller procedure, and parasophageal hernia repair. All right, V, you ready to get started? We're going to go with achalasia to begin. All right, let's get going. So, yeah, the achalasia is, is defined by an aperistaltic esophagus and a lower esophageal sphincter that fails to relax in response to swallowing. And this creates a functional obstruction at the end of the esophagus. And it's not entirely known, but it's thought to be due to neural degeneration, uh, uh, leading to loss of uh, vagal uh, input. Uh, most right. folks present with dysphagia, uh, with regurgitation, chest pain, and weight loss. So, V, how would you uh, work someone up who presents with these symptoms?
1: All right. So, for many of these patients that we're going to talk about today, there's going to be some standard tests that we're always ordering. Uh, for achalasia patients, they'll often have a barium swallow performed. In it, you'll find the classic bird beak appearance. You'll have a... EGD perform, which can help to rule out things such as pseudoachalasia or obstructing masses at the GE junction. And you also want to perform a manometry. The manometry is going to give you uh, some information. A conventional manometry will demonstrate aperistalsis in the distal two-thirds of the esophagus and incomplete lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. You're also going to find elevated LES pressures uh, in some patients, but not all. In high-resolution manometry, something that we're seeing more and more, uh, you'll find what's called elevated integrated relaxation pressure, usually greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, which can help to differentiate. And the high-resolution manometry can help to differentiate the types of uh, achalasia type one, two, and three which is oftentimes referred to as the Chicago classification system.
0: All right. So, V, let's say, again, we have a a person who presents with dysphagia. They have some regurgitation. You get a barium swallow. You see that classic bird's beak appearance. You do do an EGD that rules out any type of mass in the distal esophagus, and you perform uh, conventional manometry that shows aperistalsis in the distal two-thirds of the esophagus. How are you going to treat that patient? What kind of uh, a, a slew of treatments do we have?
1: So as a surgeon, we're oftentimes going to progress to offering them a uh, Heller myotomy with dwarf application, but it's also important to recognize the spectrum of treatment that exists for these patients because many of them are being referred to us by gastroenterologists. Patients may, be, uh, may have tried trials of calcium channel blockers or nitrates, these are generally considered ineffective, and both of both of those medications are associated with various side effects. Uh, patients may have undergone endoscopic Botox injections, which can provide some temporary relief. These endoscopic procedures can lead to scarring, which can make your subsequent surgery more difficult. Um, and generally are reserved for patients who aren't good surgical candidates. Other endoscopic procedures that exist include pneumatic dilation, uh, which can be effective, uh, but it may not be as durable as surgery. And there's always the risk of rupture whenever pneumatic dilation is being performed. More new age approaches to the management of patients who present with achalasia include POEM procedures or per-oral endoscopic myotomy, which is effective, but there is limited long-term data as to its durability. As surgeons, again, we're going to often offer these patients a Heller myotomy uh, with door fund application. Many people can perform this laparoscopically, and it's considered the gold standard. Um, Another thing to know is that we're talking about patients who are presenting with classic achalasia. In rare circumstances, you may evaluate a patient and identify what's called mega esophagus. Uh, that is considered terminal. And for those patients, Heller myotomy would not be of any benefit. And in fact, esophagectomy is indicated. So Patrick, uh, we've talked about laparoscopic Heller myotomy. Why don't you go through how you would set up the operation and uh, perform a Heller myotomy with door fundoplication?
0: Yeah. So I put the patient supine uh, on a footboard with their head up, uh, oral gastric tube placed for decompression. Uh, put my ports in and before ports in the upper abdomen with a liver retractor. Uh, go ahead and mobilize the right and left crura, uh, taking care to avoid injury to the anterior vagus nerve. Uh, I say anterior specifically because there's no need to mobilize posterior. Uh, we're going to take down short gastrics. And then this is the, the myotomy part. We're going to use hook cautery to divide both the circular And the longitudinal muscle fibers on the esophagus for a length of six centimeters, and carry that dissection uh, or or transection two centimeters onto the stomach. Again, six centimeters uh, of esophagus, two centimeters of a stomach. We're going to bluntly dissect those muscle fibers free from the mucosa. Uh, We're going to do that gently uh, so we don't injure uh, the mucosa. If it is injured, we can repair it with absorbable suture uh, over a bougie, and we can close uh, the muscle over that injured area and go ahead and make a new myotomy on the opposite side of the esophagus. And in general, a door fundoplication is performed. It's 180-degree wrap. We're going to use the fundus of the stomach to wrap anteriorly and ideally cover that myotomy site. And then upon completion, perform a leak test. All right, okay. so that wraps up uh, achalasia. Uh, let's move on to a Zenker's diverticulum. V, you want to tell us about uh, Zanker's uh, sac-like outpouching. Tell me more about that. Where does it come from? What's the name?
1: So Zanker's diverticulum is, what, uh, is just as you described, the sac-like outpouching of the pharyngeal uh, through what's called Killian's triangle uh which exists between the thyropharyngeus and the cricopharyngeus and is and this is considered the most common type of esophageal diverticulum Zenker's diverticulum is also considered what's called a false diverticulum because it doesn't contain all of the layers of the esophagus but rather only the mucosa which protrudes through the muscular layers
0: great great so presentation for his anchor severely older folks 70 to 80 years old uh just dys- they have dysphagia they regurgitate undigested food uh, may have aspiration bad breath etc um how uh, are you going to work these guys up
1: yeah so oftentimes what's being done is a barium swallow which would help you to identify that uh that outpouching and a ct scan of the uh chest and abdomen to help differentiate the anatomy and better understand what's going on. So in terms of treatment, um, we'll move into that. Um, the standard operation that's going to be performed is a open diverticulectomy, which is considered the gold standard. There's also endoscopic approaches. So Patrick, can you talk a little about how you would perform an open diverticulectomy?
0: Yeah, uh, I can do that. And as a reminder too, for the listeners, this is a advanced procedure. Uh, we're going through these just because they're kind of rare, um, uh, you know, I, uh, to jog all the uh, listeners' memory. But this is not considered a core procedure for the oral board. So to perform an open divertic electomy, you're going to perform a left neck incision along the anterior border of the SCM. Uh, you're going to dissect down to identify the esophagus, which is located posterior to the trachea, but anterior to the spine. And typically, you're going to need to ligate a few structures to get to that area, and that includes the facial vein. Um, oftentimes the middle or the middle thyroid vein, uh, sometimes the inferior thyroid artery, and the omohyoid muscle. Uh, and it's important to note that the recurrent laryngeal nerve travels in the tracheoesophageal groove. Uh, you're going to perform your diverticulectomy once you see it and close that uh, the mucosa in two layers uh, uh, with absorbable suture uh, over a bougie. And importantly, and don't forget, you want to actually... Divide the entire cricopharyngeus muscle, It's the inferior muscle here. Uh, divide, come right across the entire cricopharyngeus muscle. All right. That wraps up Zankers. I think we'll talk uh, a little bit about esophageal perforation. Again, this is one of the core uh, topics uh, or diseases, conditions listed in the SCORE uh, curriculum. So, uh, esophageal perforation, lots of different causes. Uh, they can be could be tra- traumatic from a foreign body could actually be iatrogenic, usually an EGD. This is, uh, uh, constitutes more than 50% of esophageal perforations. And the most common, uh, place is through Killian's triangle, that, that space we just talked about for his anchors. could have caustic or acidic burns, uh, retching, uh, uh, causing barotrauma, a malignancy can cause perforation and inflammation from ulcers or IBD. Uh, so, uh, how are these guys present or these guys or gals presenting?
1: So these patients will present oftentimes quite ill and septic. So, you know, principles of management of patients with sepsis is essential. Uh, They can present with chest pain and, and you could feel crepitous either along their mediastinum or their neck. And so you have to have a high index of suspicion if the patient presents with some of those risk factors you mentioned. Workup is going to include an X-ray, which may show mediastinal or intraabdominal uh, q emphysema, may show effusions. Um, swallow studies, when performed, will show uh, can be done using water soluble contrast initially, and then barium uh, if the water soluble test is negative. CT scans can also be performed, and EGDS can be done to identify the uh, focal area of perforation. Through that workup, uh, if you are to identify a patient who has an esophageal perforation, it's important not to delay treatment as this is associated with mortality. So with that said, Patrick, if you identify a patient who has an esophageal perforation, how are you going to manage them?
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, that they can often present septic. And so delay in treatment is is a major problem. So I want to treat these people aggressively, early, early. Uh, uh, follow the surviving sepsis guidelines. Otherwise, there is a documented and known increased mortality, uh, as you, if you, uh, a delay treatment. And so if it's not, if they're not really sick though, and it's not a huge perforation, uh, something you think might, uh, heal on its own, you can definitely go a more conservative route, uh, including making the patient MPO, starting them at antibiotics and antifungal therapy and considering percutaneous drainage. Uh, if they're more sick, uh, we definitely want to consider surgery. So a that's procedure or even an open washout uh, and drainage with or without debridement of that area of the esophagus is perforated. And if you can, primary repair is ideal. So if it's an early injury and the esophagus is viable, it looks healthy, definitely go for primary repair. Um, you want to open up, uh, I guess when you talk about, if we're going to go this route and, and talk about a primary repair, you need to open up the muscle actually longitudinally uh, to expose the extent of the mucosal injury. You don't want to get caught repairing uh, areas of the mucosa that you see and then be tricked and actually have a longer mucosal defect and you just close muscle over top of it. So open that muscle up on top of it longitudinally, expose the extent of the mucosal injury, perform a repair, usually two layers uh, with uh, a probably absorbable suture in the mucosa, absorbable or permanent suture in the muscle. And you want to buttress with an intercostal flap as needed. If uh, things are really bad and depending on the type of injury, you can also perform resection and diversion and diversion being a, a cervical spit fistula with delayed reconstruction. Uh, this would be for, uh, maybe a caustic injury and, or a very severe illness. Um, and, uh, esophagectomy, uh, as well, uh, for non or non, uh, salvageable injuries and esophageal stenting. Uh, this is something that's relatively new. I'd probably uh, not discuss this in a lot of detail on the boards, if at all. Um, uh, but, um, One of the other things you want to do is if you're going the surgical route, don't forget to obtain enteral access like G-tube, or at least consider giving the patient TPN. These patients need to be NPO for a relatively uh, long period of time, and you want to make sure they have the right nutrition to heal because they can be very sick. And if uh, once you've completed your either conservative management or surgery, get an esophagram at some point to ensure that that leak has closed. All right.
1: Good. Why don't we move on um, to the next topic which would be hiatal hernia. We'll talk about uh, the presentation and then go through some of the workup and surgery. So for hiatal hernias, again, there's uh, four types. Type 1 is uh, the vast majority of cases. It's considered a sliding hiatal hernia. Types 2, 3, and 4 are going to be called parasophageal hernias. Patients will present with uh, typical and atypical symptoms, typical ones being related to GERD for type 1. Um dysphagia, fullness, nausea, vomiting, and uh, GERD symptoms will be more common in patients who come in with type 2, 3, or 4 uh, hiatal hernias. Whenever these patients come to the hospital or you're evaluating someone with a hiatal hernia, it's important to rule out any cardiac causes of chest pain. So with that said, how would we work them up?
0: Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned in earlier esophageal issues four tests that are very common: upper GI, EGD, manometry, and pH probe. Uh, and this these patients really need three of those. So upper GI, EGD, and manometry. A pH probe is typically not necessary. Upper GI allows you to assess for any malignancy, any kind of major issues, also some of the anatomy. Um, excuse me. That would uh, EGD would be allow for that. Uh, upper GI, same thing too. A swallow will show you uh, where that. Uh, Hernia is, how big it is, et cetera. You do manometry to ensure that you don't have severe esophageal dysmotility that would prohibit you from making a wrap, uh, which is critical to repairing and reducing uh, these hernias. Um, now, surgical repair is typically only indicated for patients who are symptomatic, of symptomatic disease. Uh, offering prophylactic surgery to asymptomatic patients who are good surgical candidates is probably controversial but it would be more acceptable in, a, in young patients who have especially large hernias. Um, now, uh, the, typically the surgery uh, that we perform for this is a laparoscopic transabdominal hiatal hernia repair with a Nissen fundoplication. Uh, again, lap transabdominal hiatal hernia repair with Nissen fundoplication. That's the one that I would talk about in the boards. Can you tell uh, everyone how to do that?
1: Sure. So uh, you're going to uh, position the patient supine. Put the arms out and put them on a footboard. Uh, you're going to put ports at the umbilicus um, and then to the left and slightly above the umbilicus as well as uh, multiple other ports on the right side uh, and one in the sub-xiphoid region if you're going to plan to use a liver retractor. You're going to position the patient in uh, reverse Trendelenburg. Uh, And then you're going to work to accomplish uh, some important uh, goals during this operation. First and foremost, you want to reduce the hernia. You're going to start on the right side at the bare area of the gastrohepatic ligament. And you're going to avoid any injury to the accessory left hepatic artery or hepatic branches of the vagus nerve that go through that area. And using blunt dissection and electrocautery, you're going to dissect the esophagus and stomach from both of the crura, taking care not to injure the vagus nerves. At that time, you're going to reduce the hernia and remove the hernia sac if it's uh, possible. Next, you're going to work on the left side of the stomach and ligate the short gastric vessels to help mobilize the stomach. Uh, And then you're going to finish with uh, uh, posterior dissection. And uh, when you're completed with a posterior dissection, you'll pass a penrose behind the esophagus to aid with retraction. At this point, you want to ensure that you have adequate length to perform um, uh, your and fundoplication. You want to have at least 3 centimeters of the esophagus within the stomach without having to put any tension on it. If if you run into issues with inadequate mobilization, you can either work on trying to uh, mobilize further within the mediastinum or perform a collis gastroplasty. Once you've uh, adequately lengthened the esophagus or have appropriate mobilization, you then move forward with a repair of the hiatal hernia. This is typically done with interrupted non-absorbable sutures um, uh, doing a cruroplasty. I generally do not use mesh in these scenarios, but it has been associated with decreased recurrence rates, at least in the short term following uh, hiatal hernia repair. And then finally, perform a fund application. Uh, uh, Nissen fund application, which is a 360-degree wrap, can be performed as long as there is no evidence of esophageal dysmotility in your preoperative workup. If there is, then a partial wrap, either a toupee, which is 270 degrees, uh, can be performed with, or a dwarf application. These are typically performed over a, a bougie, which would be, in my case, a 56 French bougie uh, uh, that would be passed through the esophagus. Uh, you want uh, your fund application to be at least two to three centimeters in length. And this is performed by placing three to four interrupted sutures, which incorporate uh, both the stomach and the esophagus within uh, each of the bites. After you're done with your fund application, you'll perform a leak test to, uh, using EGD. And then uh, uh, that should wrap up the operation. Excellent. Operative complications, I guess we can talk a little about it if you want, but uh, complications, obviously, esophageal injury and pneumothorax are things that you should be able and prepared to discuss uh, during the operation.
0: Great. Uh, Let's move on to Gert. I I, want to mention, too, V, what you just described was reducing a hiatal hernia, right? Uh, In addition to a fundoplication, the single core procedure. In the SCORE curriculum, uh, in the esophagus section is anti-reflux procedures, and that is the Nissen fundoplication like you just described there. So let's move on to GERD. Uh, so GERD results from uh, incompetent lower esophageal sphincter and or increased intra-abdominal pressure. You can have acidic reflux. It can be neutral or basic, uh, but these all can lead to GERD. And the typical symptoms you see are, are heartburn, water brash, or dysphagia. Some of the atypical GERD symptoms include cough or wheezing, hoarseness or sore throat, dental erosions, and ear pain. And some of the alarm symptoms uh, that can come with GERD, which are concerning for things like cancer or erosive esophagitis, include dysphagia, early satiety, hematemesis, melena, vomiting, and weight loss. Now, in the absence of... Alarm symptoms, GERD uh, can be treated with PPI and lifestyle modifications. And those life mile, lifestyle modifications include weight loss, the cessation of smoking, limiting caffeine intake, not eating right before you go to bed, et cetera. And if you have a good response to PPIs, this is actually diagnostic of GERD. Now, uh, if PPIs don't take care of the problem and GERD persists, uh, oftentimes these folks are referred to surgeons. So, what kind of diagnostic testing uh, do we do um, for people presenting with refractory GERD?
1: All right. So, for these patients, again, you want to standardize your workup. And for the boards, I would order all the big four tests, which are going to include an EGD, pH-pro uh, monitoring, manometry, and a upper GI. So, Endoscopy is going to help us assess for esophagitis. You can then use the LA classification to score the degree of esophagitis. It's going to help rule out malignancy. It's going to help to identify if there's any evidence of Barrett's esophagus. And it's going to identify strictures pH probe testing and impedance testing is important. Uh, Using that test, you can calculate a Demeester score through the algorithm. Any score greater than 14.7 is considered abnormal. And then, again, you want to rule out motility disorders. So, manometry can be done to rule out things such as scleroderma or achalasia like we described before, both of which would be contraindications to performing an anti-reflux surgery. And then finally, a study to define the anatomy. So an upper GI, again, to evaluate the anatomy, to identify any hiatal hernias, any evidence of esophageal shorting, shortening, I should say. So um, Patrick, what are the indications for surgery?
0: Yeah. Uh, so again, as I mentioned before, failed medical management. If you're getting significant complications from GERD and some of these uh, nagging symptoms, uh, or the patient has actually a contraindication to PPI and can't be treated, uh, you would proceed with with repair. Now, uh, as I mentioned, you just went through a beautiful description of a Nissen fundoplication. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about in general, instead of going through each step, the principles of surgical management for GER. And that's uh, if you do happen to find any hiatal uh, hernia, you're going to reduce it, number one. Number two, you need to do a tension-free restoration of intraabdominal esophageal length. You said three centimeters of esophagus. Hanging out below the diaphragm without you tugging on it, so 3 centimeters. You're going to approximate the diaphragmatic crura, again, like we just talked about, for a hiatal hernia repair. You're going to perform a fundoplication. And uh, there's a number of different, uh, uh, I guess, controversies regarding uh, anti reflux procedures. So uh, what about the difference between ignition, which is 360 degrees, toupee, which is U70, or door, which is 180 a uh, complete fund application uh, has been found to be fairly equivalent to partial fund Again, unless there's some kind of contraindication on the boards, we can just stick with a Nissen 360 degree. Uh, how about approach? intra versus thoracic uh, outcomes have been found to be mostly similar. And we mentioned mesh before. Uh, the use of mesh does not a clearly reduce long-term hernia rates, and actually there are some complications like erosion through the esophagus. And so again, for the boards, uh, and the purpose of safety we will probably not mention uh, a mesh in any way.
1: All right. So I think that wraps up GERD. Why don't we now focus on some cancer? We've mostly focused on benign esophagus. To this point, well, let's talk about esophageal cancer. Um, so when thinking about esophageal cancer, you want to sort of Look for any evidence that the patient may have risk factors, which would include smoking, drinking, recent weight loss, or dysphagia. Um, and you want to be, again, systematic with your workup. This would include an upper GI, an EGD with biopsies. So let's say a patient presents with some, some of those alarm symptoms that we discussed earlier. You get an upper GI, which shows a possible mass, and an EGD, which confirms after biopsies that they actually have esophageal cancer. How do you stage the patient, Patrick?
0: Yeah, so uh, this is according to the 8th edition uh, NCCN guidelines, which is from 2017. Uh, I'm going to perform a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, or pelvis, or in this case, a PET scan, uh, which is what I would just say go with the CT PET. Um, We're going to perform an EUS, endoscopic ultrasound, and with FNAs of any suspicious lymph nodes. If the lesion is, is proximal or you have concern that it invades the trachea, you'd perform a uh, bronchoscopy. And for all these patients, consider a diagnostic laparoscopy in advance of major surgery or at least uh, consider that at the time of surgery before opening. Now, treatment for this is a little more complicated uh, in regards to the staging. It might be worth thinking about T-scores and memorizing something. So, uh T1A, which is disease to the muscularis mucosa, uh, allows for endoscopic retreatment with radiofrequency ablation. And that is, in fact, uh, preferred treatment. So T1A, muscularis mucosa, is endoscopic treatment with RF ablation. If you have T1B, uh, uh, N0 disease, again, T1B being through the submucosa, or T2, N0 disease, with T2 being through the muscularis propria, this goes straight to surgery. I say straight to, this is an important difference because you're not going to do, you don't have the option of endoscopic treatment and you don't do preoperative chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So, again, T1B, submucosa, T2, muscularis propria, straight to surgery. How about those patients who need neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So, that's any anyone with a positive node. Uh, or with T3 to T4A disease, is neoadjuvant chemoradiation, actually I should say ke- neoadjuvant chemoradiation, and then surgery to follow. And if they have T4B disease, which means in, uh, that invades adjacent unresectable organs, that's palliative chemo. So the risk of being redundant, going right back through that T1A, muscularis mucosa, endoscopic treatment. T1B submucosa, or T2, muscularis propria with no lymph node involvement, straight to surgery. Anything above that gets neoadjuvant chemoradiation followed by surgery unless they have major disease that invades adjacent unresectable organs that's palliative. Before you do these surgeries and you're in, getting an, into someone's chest, uh, I think certainly for the boards, I'd want to stop for a moment and say I'm going to perform a full cardiopulmonary workup beforehand to assess uh, a mod- for modifiable risk factors uh, or, and, and modifiable risk factors for that patient. So uh, what are the the surgical options for esophageal cancer?
1: All right. So many approaches to performing an esophagectomy. I think uh, for the purposes of the boards, familiarizing yourself with one and being comfortable describing it is important. There's the transhiatal esophagectomy. There's the Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, which involves a right thoracotomy, as well as a laparotomy with intrathoracic anastomosis. And there's the tri-incision esophagectomy, which is going to incorporate a neck incision, a transthoracic component, as well as a laparotomy with a cervical anastomosis. Me and Patrick were both residents at the University of Michigan, and so we uh, focused mostly on the transhiatal esophagectomy. Um, how you perform that operation would include a uh, upper midline laparotomy, You'd start by exploring the peritoneal cavity for any evidence of metastases. You'd then mobilize the left liver by um, dissecting along the triangular ligament. You'd then mobilize the stomach by taking down the short gastrics and the uh, left gastric artery. Um, the the goal here is to preserve the right gastric and the right gastroepiploic, as these will serve as the blood supply to the conduit. You'll then perform a cocker maneuver. Um, uh, You'll also perform a pyloromyotomy and place a J-tube. Some of these are considered optional, but I think for the purposes of the boards and being safe, I would include them in my operative approach. And then you would mobilize the thoracic esophagus bluntly. Uh, You'd then move on to the neck, where you'd uh, open the left neck and mobilize the esophagus distally. You'd then transect the esophagus and pull the specimen through the laparotomy. You'd finally transect the stomach about 6 centimeters from the GE junction. Then you'd focus on making a tubularized stomach that you could pass through the chest. After passing it through the chest and into the uh, cervical incision, you'd perform a cervical esophageal gestation. Uh, gastric anastomosis, um, and you then uh, bring out your J-tube and close your midline incision. It's a complex operation, but something I think we should all be familiar with before walking into the boards.
0: Excellent review. So that is the first of many uh, uh, podcasts in this series in which we'll be reviewing all the core uh, information, the necessary stuff that you need to know to be comfortable with the oral boards. Uh, We're excited to bring you more of this content. And of course, at this time, you should probably feel free to go out there and dominate the day. Thanks for joining us. Of this content. And of course, at this time, you should probably feel free to go out there and dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.